Well, it's budget day, and I'll tell you one thing, Rishi Sunak, not short of optimism. It was almost sort of Borisy and boosterish. Um, everything's going absolutely swimmingly. We've got a wonderful future ahead of us. And I like optimism. We want optimism from our leaders. Um, I'm just not sure the whole thing was entirely justified. Uh, I have a feeling uh, that one or two of the growth projections uh, that Rishi Sunak was talking about, about, which the whole thing was based on, uh, maybe uh, turn out to be r rather like fables, but I'll discuss that. Uh, with Liam Halligan, our economics and business editor, in a moment. The other observation that was interesting is I couldn't tell whether it was a Conservative Party or a Labour Party budget. I genuinely couldn't. You know, we're now in this era of tax and spend, and there seems to be money for everything. More money for Scotland. Uh, the foreign aid budget, going back to where it was before. There's money for everything. And even next year, when we're back to normality, the annual budget deficit is going to be a hundred billion pounds. Whether this new form of Rishinomics works or not, or just leaves the country indebted and in a hole, I don't know. He's very good in terms of presentation, very good at putting out a positive message, and he has cut the price of a pint of beer, which for some of us is really very, very important. But seriously, can we afford Rishi Sunak? Let me know what you thought of the budget, GBviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet at gbnews. Now, joining me, as I mentioned a moment ago, is Liam Halligan. Liam, projected growth for this year, miraculously, has got in the space of a few hours... Now, I may, perhaps I'm being too sarcastic here. <laughs> Surely not! <laughs> well, <are> you? <laughs> but, but has gone from 4.5% to 6.5%, and this is produced by the Office for Budget Responsibility. How do they do their sums? Well, this is the, the budget document, Nigel. This is one of them. There are various annexes that are just as thick. And in this tsunami of data, the one key number, the one number around which all the other numbers revolve, as you've alighted on, is that growth assumption yeah. for 2021. Back in March, the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is supposedly independent, it's sort of an adjunct to the Treasury, it's like the forecasting watchdog was predicting 4% growth, which is quite, quite high by international standards. That was in March. Now they're predicting predicting 6.5% growth. And if you don't have that 6.5% growth, Nigel, this year, that's the growth that generates the tax revenues that allows Rishi Sunak to make these spending commitments without raising taxes more than he already has or without borrowing more money and unsettling financial markets. So the growth assumption it isn't just a number in a spreadsheet. It's a number that drives all the other numbers in the budget. We just heard the GB News headlines. There's billions flying around oh. everywhere. They're all money that generate are generated by that increase in growth from 4% to 6.5%. If that growth doesn't materialise, and I think, like you, I'm a bit sceptical that it will materialise, given that the economy's in handcuffs with all these supply chain issues, we're meant to be in a V-shaped recovery. Well, there is a recovery, we are growing, but I don't think we're growing as quickly as many other economists think that we are. No. If that growth doesn't happen, then he's going to come unstuck, because then, in the run-up to an election, he is going to have to raise taxes a lot or do borrowing at such an extent that he could unsettle financial markets. And the tax take already is the biggest um, in percentage terms that it's That's been right. since the Second World War. So he's already put taxes up a fair old chunk. And yet, in a way, if we think about the politics of this, 
what on earth do Labour say? That it's very difficult. Because you've got a Conservative Party doing what they would be doing. It's very difficult for Labour when you've got a big tax, big spend, Tory Chancellor. I thought somebody who did really well today, and we should say this on GB News, was Rachel Reeves. Rachel Reeves mm. is the shadow Chancellor. Ordinarily, as you know, it's the leader of the opposition that responds to a budget. But of course, as we just saw there, Keir Starmer is isolating. He's got a sick note. So Rachel Reeves had to step in. And I thought she did really well on a sticky wicket. Because how can she possibly lay a glove on the Tories when the Tories are announcing £150 billion of extra spending? Yeah. When the Tories are announcing a minimum wage rise from 891 to 950? And even the Labour Party say it should only be £10 an hour. It is very difficult. But it all comes down to, again, this growth number. And Rishi Sunak, he, he talks a kind of big spending game. He thinks that's what's going to uh, retain those red wall votes for the Conservative yeah. Party, which are key to the next election. But he's slightly unnerving a lot of his backbenchers, the sort of Tory MPs who maybe you've hung out with a lot over the years, the Marc Francois, the John Redwoods, yeah. the sort of mainstream, small-state Conservatives yeah. who really tap into... British public opinion, and, and, particularly and Middle English public opinion. Aspiration. That's right, that's right. And They're concerned spend. about all this big spending going on. They're concerned that NHS spending is now 70% bigger than it was just a decade ago when we've got these huge long waiting lists. Maybe that's the reason why he didn't unveil loads of green stuff today ahead of COP26 starting at the weekend, because he knows the backbenchers don't like it. There was rhetoric at the end where he says, I'm a small state person, I don't like the fact... I, d I, I don't like the fact that the government seems to be the answer to all the questions. It's my aspiration, he said, to eventually cut taxes. Hmm. But what he actually did was more like a Gordon Brown budget than it was yeah. like a Rishi Sunak budget. No, I agree with that. And, and finally, Liam, did he really show any understanding of the cost of living crisis that is now being faced by millions of families? I think he showed... Under, he, he, this is probably the most financially sophisticated Chancellor of our lifetimes. Intellectually, I would say he ranks up there with Nigel Lawson, who's widely seen wow. as an extremely sophisticated uh, thinker, uh, an intellectual person. Rishi Sunak's got all the smarts. He's got all the brains power. He's a Goldman Sachs investment banker, a, a really... Uh, successful person so far in his young life who just happens to have turned his hand to politics. Um, there was uh, that change in the universal credit taper, which I think was the big rabbit out of the hat. Yeah. So if you work and you're on universal credit at the moment, you lose 63p in every extra pound you earn. Why would you get out of bed for yeah. 63 if you're going to get taxed 63p in the pound? That's gone down to 55. <coughs> that should increase work incentives. But what I didn't see were things like helping... Uh, households with the massive fuel bills they're going to they have. They could have taken the 5%. They, they could definitely have done that. With Brexit? Because, you, as you know, better yeah. than anyone in the world, possibly, yeah. Yeah. you have to keep VAT rates at a certain amount under the European Union. You can't zero-rate VAT yeah. only with very, very special permission from Brussels. That's all gone. He could have done that. I was surprised he didn't do that. Um, I think you mentioned the cost of living, of course... Economists refer to that as inflation. There was an interesting coda on inflation. 
The Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, has finally admitted, he's been quite reticent about this, that we're going to hit 4% inflation by the end of the year. Rishi Sunak went much, much further. He said we're going to average 4% inflation mm. over the next year, mm. which means inflation could get much higher this winter <laughs> into spring and then it might go down. He also seemed to chide the Bank of England governor where he revealed publicly at the dispatch box, I've written to the Bank of England to reaffirm the need to bear down on inflation. I mean, to, to say that, well, you have to tell the Bank of England yeah, governor what his job is. Interesting theatrics, sounds interesting like, politics. Sounds like Trump and the Fed. <laughs> <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> Liam, thank you very much indeed. Well, alcohol featured quite strongly in the budget today because the price, the duty on some really strong drinks is going to go up. So I suspect for whiskey and gin drink because it's not great. But beer is coming down by threepence a pint and... Champagne is going to be cheaper, which I'm sure will please all of those Labour supporters in Islington tonight. Well, joining me is somebody who's going to be very happy with this budget. I think he's been celebrating, actually. I'm joined by Hugh Osmond, the founder of Punched Heavens. Hugh, good evening. Good evening. Now, pubs have had a terrible time through, you know, lockdown, the pandemic. Um, is this what was needed? Well, I'm obviously delighted that the price of a pint of beer is coming down. So that is fantastic news. And also the rates reduction for small operators is going to be brilliant for a lot of owner operators of uh, pubs and restaurants, hospitality. So that is that is genuinely good news. And we're we're all pleased about that. And you have to be pleased about anything good. Um, on the other hand, you know, what wasn't in the budget, but announced prior the uh, tax on jobs, the national insurance increase, which will predominantly hit young people, young workers, the younger workforce to pay for the elderly, is, I think, the single worst and most aggressive tax hike we've had for years. You know, that's not been included in the budget, probably won't be talked about tomorrow. But uh, if you pee off a pint of beer, we'll do nothing to address you know, what is a straight tax on young people's jobs? And, you know, that, I think, is a real disappointment that that wasn't uh, looked at again because it's uh, totally regressive and hits all the wrong people. You don't charge the young to uh, pay for elderly care. No, but I guess they felt they had to raise taxes in some way. And, yeah, you know, a lot of people are going to think this is unfair, but it is not going to change, um, Hugh, in the short term. How is the pub sector overall? Well, I, I think that trade has been, you know, reassuringly, pleasantly strong um, since reopening for most people. And, uh, you know, that has been a, a, a very good thing. Um, you know, what we read about in the papers that, you know, people are still afraid and people are still worried about the epidemic. That's not really apparent, you know, down, down your local. And I, I guess it's the people who like to go out are going out. And perhaps the people who don't like going out are saying, oh, it's much better if we stay in. And they probably would have stayed in anyway. So by and large, I mean, we're, we're seeing people out and about. I'm sure you are too. You know, pubs are busy. Restaurants are busy. It's been really good. And actually, to be fair to, to Rishi, you know, the, the VAT reduction w was very helpful um, shame that politically that couldn't be applied to alcohol and perhaps the beer duty reduction now is, is, is meant to address that. But pubs, you know, have been pretty busy um, without these restrictions. On the other hand, you know, there is a lot of inflation now around and it is a direct result of 
lockdowns and the government measures taking that you know there's huge problems in in um re recruitment and also in the supply side you know nothing to do with brexit in the main simply just coming out of an economy being shut down for 18 months you know remarkable that politicians thought you know that that could just run smoothly you can't just shut a whole economy down and just think oh great we'll open it up again all the supply side will be fine everything will be fine and when you've got dvla you know, not processing 50, 60,000 HGV drivers, you know, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah, funnily enough, there's shortages of everything and prices have to rise. Finally, on a slightly lighter note, how much will champagne come down by? Well, I, I'm not quite, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. You caught me on the, on the hop there. I think that, <laughs> you know, beer will be um, three or four P only. Um, I, I doubt, I'm afraid, that, that most pubs and, and restaurants will be able to pass those price cuts on to customers because the price of pretty much everything else is going up. I mean, the cost of, of inputs and you know wages are going, going to be up 4 or 5%. You know, food and, and other supplies to pubs are minimum up 4 or 5%. So I, I doubt, unfortunately, that customers will see much of the benefit. This will just be you know one small part of everybody's business where the input costs have gone down. And we'll all be very grateful of that and, and yeah, have a few yeah. pints on it. But I, I don't think it will necessarily end up at the bar, I'm afraid, because everything else ah. costs are just going through the roof. You Sorry about to, that, Nigel. You but... had to spoil it, Hugh, didn't you? You really did. <laughs> have to... <laughs> I am pleased about the price of beer. I'll be pleased okay. about, about that. And, and I'm more pleased at the end of the day than I was at the beginning. But it's a, you know, well, it's a tough market out there. It's tough for wages. Good. It's tough to buy stuff. It's, uh, you yeah. know, inflation is coming and we're really feeling it in hospitality. Hugh Osmond, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, our last guest to discuss this budget and what it all means is Dr Gerard Lyons, former Chief Economic Advisor to Boris Johnson when he was Mayor of London and NetWealth Chief Economic Strategist. Gerard, good evening. Good evening. So we've got kind of Rishi. It's a little bit like Boris now, isn't he? It's just endless optimism, spending lots and lots of money and not really worrying about borrowing too much. Is that the kind of responsible economics we expect to see from a Conservative Chancellor? Well, I think, Nigel, all budgets need to be put in the economic context in which they're occurring. And having had a deep pandemic that has hit the economy very hard, I thought he basically took the right stance today. The economy's improving, public finances have turned the corner, borrowing is clearly on the downward trend. That being said, as he said halfway through his budget speech, he talked about the fact that you need to judge people and chancellors by what they do, not just by what they say. And I think that's the key challenge. To actually build on this budget, the key issue now and the key question for the government is that they now need to deliver on the supply side agenda driven by the private sector and taking the burden off small businesses. So the good news is the economy has turned the corner. The good news is that he did actually increase departmental spending, thus avoiding the austerity, not just of George Osborne, but actually many of these departments didn't receive the spending they should have received when Gordon Brown and others, I think, were in power. So certainly the Osborne austerity is now no longer a policy option. Uh, but what we basically have here is that the Chancellor has to decide what to do. He's decided to borrow. He's decided to tax. He's decided to also spend. What we now really need to have is stronger, sustained economic growth. And you were talking with Liam 
growth this year and next year will be strong. The key challenge is what happens thereafter. Because even though the OBR, the independent forecasters, are optimistic for the next 24 months, they're pretty cautious, I would argue, about what yes. happens thereafter. I saw those, those years, those later years, 24, 5, 6, they're projecting growth back to sort of 1.6%, 1.3%. That, that isn't very good, is it? No. What we really need to have is a pro-growth economic strategy. I saw elements of that today, but it really needs to have three arrows to it, three parts to it. One is monetary and financial stability. And inflationary worries are apparent. You've talked about that. The other issue with low and close to zero interest rates is that financial instability risks are high. People don't talk about that. So that's one arrow. That's down to the Bank of England. I don't think we should have confidence about them. Their track record to date is not particularly good. For the last year, they've been like the driver in a the car. They put the foot down on an accelerator, passed all the warning signs. Now we're at the bottom of a hill. They want to put the brake on. The second arrow is the whole fiscal side. We saw elements of that today. But as you've touched on, borrowing is still too high, albeit on the right trajectory. But the third arrow, the third area, is the one that we really need to see this government, and you would argue correctly that a Conservative government, you would think, would be very much focused on this, is the whole supply side. We've talked and, about the big words today, and, and, and innovation, Gerard, investment. Gerard, isn't that really where Brexit comes in? Because doesn't Brexit yeah, free absolutely. us? And, 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 and Rishi did talk in that budget about Brexit being a good thing and, and, and leaving us free to do things differently. He just hasn't quite got round to doing them, has he? Uh, that's right. Well, in terms of the UK, for 2016 to 19, we had the political crisis. The last two years, if you want to give credit, we've had the pandemic and we've handled that relatively well in terms of the economic side. But you're right, it's now about delivering. The OBR do not believe, when you look at their forecast, that there's any Brexit dividends. Clearly, you've just talked about the drink sector. There's a dividend there if you want to actually exercise it. I would argue there's dividends all over the place in terms of having Brexit now giving us freedom to set our own domestic objectives and also to position ourselves globally in terms of the future growth markets. So the challenge, as you've touched on, is basically seizing that opportunity from Brexit. So I'm I recognise, in my view, that, and I've said the same as you've said earlier, tax take is too high. There are valid criticisms. The recent tax increases I thought were wrong, but the spending increase today in terms of departments was right to avoid austerity. We need to actually now make sure we actually keep inflation in check or ride that problem as well as we can. But also we really do need, and the Chancellor and Prime Minister need to be combined in this, deliver that supply side agenda. And it has to help take the burden off small firms who still have too high a regulatory tax burden and still do not have the banks lending them enough money. So that's where the challenge is and that's where the opportunity lies as well. OK, Gerard Lyons, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And these are the opportunities, of course, that we want to see the Chancellor take over the course of the next couple of years. In a moment, we'll talk about one thing that did come out of the budget directly as a result of Brexit, and it is an encouragement for the Chancellor to get the red ensign flying once again in larger numbers on British ships. Well, a high spending budget was revealed today by Rishi Sunak, and we're still borrowing far too much money. And I'm just asking, can we afford Rishi? And by the way, I have to say, in terms of style and delivery, and what Liam Halligan was saying earlier, in terms of economic knowledge, you know, you probably couldn't have 
somebody more suited to this role. Uh, it's just the attitude towards money that I find a little bit bewildering. Your responses so far to this. Lorna on email says, can it be we have all this money to spend now as we are not paying into the EU's coffers? I wish, I wish I could say, yes, of course, because we've left the EU, we're all so, so, so much richer. But no, the truth, the truth of it is that the money that the Chancellor's spending is money that, we're, in most cases, that we have to borrow. That's the point, and we keep racking up. You know, when the Conservatives came to power in 2010, our accumulated national debt that we'd built up since the Napoleonic Wars was £650 billion. It's now £2.2 trillion. So there you are. It's more than trebled. And you can argue that there's been a pandemic, but even prior to the pandemic, uh, the Conservatives are not as prudent with money as they like to let you think they are at election time. Paul on Twitter says, unless it's coming from his own wallet, which I doubt. No, it isn't, but, 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 but a, fun, a, a fun answer. And Dan on Twitter says, in the aftermath of World War II, we spent and spent to get us back to growth and sustainability. The same must happen now. We did. And then what happened in the 1970s? We paid a heck of a price for it with ruinous inflation. In fact, it got as high as 27%. Uh, in 1974, and a lot of people who've been, who, who themselves have been prudent through their lives saw the value of their money disappear virtually during the 1970s. One more I'll take. Laura on email says, all these magic money trees will obviously create a magic money forest. Such an Amazonian forest will obviously reduce carbon emissions to net zero, but reduce the taxpayer to net skint. Well, on that note, on that note, I have been, since I sat here in this chair back in July, I have been saying that the rush to net zero, that the way in which it's being done, is going to be ruinous. It'll lead to yet more huge transfers of money from the poor to the rich. Uh, and given that China isn't going to play the game anyway, uh, by the looks of it, nor is Russia either, what's it going to achieve? Um, and I've been sceptical. I'm not questioning the fact that seven and a half billion of us on this planet must make some difference to the environment in which we live, and there are many things that we could do better to have a greener world. I'm questioning the method by which we're going about this, and in the case of the Prime Minister now, what seems to be almost revolutionary zeal. He's pushing for net zero, but it's supported by all the other parties in Westminster. Massive, over 90% of MPs are strongly in favour of net zero, and yet... Just like the European question, my sense of it's been, and growing sense of it's been, that out there in the shires, people are asking, hang on, who's paying for all of this? Are you serious? I've got an old Edwardian semi. Um, it's going to cost £20,000, £30,000 to actually get it equipped uh, for a heat pump with all the insulation and other things we've got to do. So the other day... In the Daily Telegraph, Alistair Heath, the commentator, he proposed, well, what about having a referendum on net zero? And extraordinarily, overnight, the Telegraph have conducted a poll and 42% of adults said they supported a vote on the plan, 30% opposed it, 28% didn't take a view. Well, if you take out the undecideds, that's 58% say 
they would like a ballot on the issue. And that is very, very interesting. We're beginning to see on the back benches now one or two people in the Conservative Party particularly questioning what Boris is doing. Now, this referendum, this, this proposal for a referendum, this idea that is being backed by voters, is likely to be something of an embarrassment to Boris Johnson, given that COP26 is just around the corner. But clearly, a lot of you out there feel this shouldn't be done without you being asked. And actually, this wasn't really what you voted for in 2019. But is a referendum on a specific issue like this actually feasible? Or should referendums really be saved for major constitutional questions? Well, joining me is Andrew Mopford, Deputy Director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Andrew, these are quite surprising figures, aren't they? Yeah, I was I was surprised actually at how much support there was for the idea of a referendum. But I share your concerns that there should be um, uh, that referenda should be reserved for constitutional issues. Um, what I would say is that net zero is so far reaching. We could consider it as as being of constitutional importance. It net zero will transform the way everybody this in this country lives. Um, we will all become immeasurably poorer, immeasurably less free. Um, and when you start about less free, you are talking essentially about a constitutional issue, aren't you? Well, um, I, I, I can just about see the logic of the argument. Um, I mean, look, we're not Switzerland, but maybe, maybe being Switzerland wouldn't be a bad thing. Because, because I just sense, Andrew, once again, we've got one of these issues where Westminster is becoming increasingly out of touch with majority opinion. Let me ask you one thing. You study this subject, you do it for a living. What is it that's made Boris such an eco-zealot? Well, of course, um, the, the story is that and surrounding him, his, his wife and his advisors, you know, the goldsmiths um, particularly, um, are pushing him towards this. Um, yeah, I don't know what goes on in Boris's head. He, he, he is the kind of guy, I think, who um, will go where he sees political advantage and he may well see political advantage in following a green line. I think uh, by the end of this winter... Um, there will be no political advantage in in following a green line at all. We are going to you know, we already see incredibly high uh, energy prices, and they're running us over the winter. Um, I I think by by March, April, uh, greenery is going to be essentially poisonous for politicians, and everybody will be backing away from it um, and and saying that they never wanted it in the first place. Yes, politicians not leading. But actually, in this case, it once again will be following. Andrew, thank you for joining us. And this is a story uh, that I'm going to cover with you here on GB News day after day after day. Uh, these proposals are too blooming expensive, not fully thought through, and are going to meet, I think, a very big wall of public opposition. Now, my what the Farage moment watching the budget, and it was one of joy, was Rishi Sunak picking up the Brexit issue. Now, he hasn't done what Gerard Lyons is arguing for. He hasn't put in place those supply-side reforms to help small business. But today, he said in the House of Commons, he'll offer tax breaks to ships that fly. 
our flag as a tribute to Britain's proud maritime history. The Red Ensign is coming back with tax incentives. That's what he said in his speech today. And I thought that was really, really interesting. He talked about the maritime history of this country, of what we stood for. I thought it was terrific. And he made the point that the previous rules that allow ships to fly any EU flag to receive preferential treatment, he said it didn't make sense for us as an independent nation. Wow. Instead, a new tonnage tax regime will reward vessels that fly the UK's merchant shipping flag. It's the Red Ensign, Sunak said. That is entirely fitting for a country with such a proud maritime history. The Red Ensign is also known as the Red Duster, and is a flag flown by British merchant or passenger ships, and it has been since 1707. It's a civil ensign, meaning it is used by civilian ships, not military ones. It's been around in some form for centuries. And the wonderful thing is, he then made a joke, and he said, well, the Labour Party actually should be pleased that at least the red flag is flying somewhere. Let's see Rishi Sunak uh, in the House of Commons saying this stuff earlier on today. So I can announce today that our tonnage tax will, for the first time ever, reward companies for adopting the UK merchant shipping flag, the Red Ensign. That, that, that is entirely fitting for a country with such a proud maritime history as ours. And, Madam Deputy Speaker, I am sure, I am sure the opposition, I am sure the opposition will be delighted that red flags are still flying somewhere in this country, even if they are, even if they are all at sea. Well, that was by far my favourite part of the whole budget. And you have to say, whatever you think um, of his tax and spend policies, he is very good in the House of Commons at delivering it. And here's something, once again, that we couldn't have done as members of the European Union that we're now able to do, which, as you can imagine, is music to my ears. Now, in a moment, we're going to be joined by a Conservative Member of Parliament, Philip Davis. He is the biggest rebel in Parliament since he joined Parliament as a Conservative MP. He's voted against his own party and government 250 times. Now, we like rebels on this show. We'll find out in a minute whether you like Philip Davis. The GB News pub is open, and yes, we've ordered a couple of beers. They were threepence cheaper than they were this morning, which can't be bad. And joining me for this episode of Talking Pints is Conservative Member of Parliament for Shipley, Philip Davis. Philip, welcome to Cheers. the GB News pub. Very nice Cheers, you to see you. So you were there today in a packed House of Commons? I wasn't actually in the House of Commons. I was, I was watching it on the TV in my office. It's much more civilised than... <laughs> Are there enough seats in that place? No, 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 there aren't. No, no, the, I mean, there's, uh, what, 400 seats, I think, the 650 MPs, so... Right, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's better watching it in the office. What did you think of it? Look, he's got a difficult task. He hasn't really got much room to play with. It's, you know, the lockdown's, you know, been terrible for, for lots of reasons, but, you know, obviously for the nation's finances. I don't really think any self-respecting Conservative can be happy with a budget that's put up taxes so much and... Uh, but, you know, probably within the, within the hand he was dealt, he probably did the best he probably could. But this was the Labour Party budget, wasn't it? I mean, let's face it, on most issues now, your Cabinet are more like Labour were a few years ago than, 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 than they are Conservatives. 
Well, they might be a bit more like Labour were a few years ago, yeah. but they're certainly not much like Labour are today. That's the what are Labour like today? Well, I mean, you know, that's the you know, but the, I think there's no doubt the centre of gravity of British politics has moved to the left over the last twenty years or so on most issues. No, it really has. It really, really has. Now, you're a serial rebel. You vote against the government on virtually everything. <laughs> um, it's not quite true, but anyway... Well, I might have a look at this. Quite, <laughs> quite a long list, you know. Um, so, clearly not aiming for ministerial office, because <laughs> that's not going to happen. Um, and, of course, you're married to Esther McVeigh, who, like you, fiercely independently minded and knows what she believes in. Don't I know it? <laughs> what is the point you've been in parliament since 2005 what are you philip davis because you're not going to become a minister that ain't going to happen but as much chance as me getting <laughs> getting honored you know <laughs> what what are you in politics for because you're in parliament you represent your constituency and i get that bit and that's an honor to do it there's no question about that but you're in a party that you're increasingly at odds with on some very, very major issues. What is Philip Davis trying, apart from having a jolly good time and upsetting everybody, what are you trying to do? Well, look, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I always say the one thing that me and Conservative Prime Ministers agree about is that I should never be promoted. Um, and I don't want to be promoted. I said in my maiden speech... It's not going to happen. I said in my maiden speech I would never accept a promotion if I was ever offered one. Look, what, what I like doing in, in Parliament particularly, apart from representing the fantastic people of the Shipley constituency, is I like speaking up and saying things that I think lots of people in the country think, but hardly anybody in Parliament will ever say. And I think that, actually, um, one of the big problems with Parliament, and, and you know, is that, actually, on most issues, the majority opinion in the country is not the majority opinion in Parliament. In fact, often, that opinion is never even heard in Parliament. Mm. And so I like speaking up for things, unfashionable causes, you might call them, things that I think people in the country think, but politicians, for whatever reason, don't like saying. And I think sometimes that, you know, if I feel I'm saying something and nobody else in there would have said that, then I feel that my position in Parliament is worthwhile. Um, and so that's, what, that's really what I like doing. No, fair enough. And I mean... And I mean... If you think about it, you know, the whole European debate, you know, and I got going on this, well, in 93, I sort of really committed my... I can't believe it, really, but, but you know, I started standing in by-elections and doing all sorts of things and trying to raise the issue. But, and I did that because I felt like you, that just Parliament was out of touch on this issue. Um, there was a lack, of it, a lack of real knowledge in the country. And I'm just pondering, Philip, I'm just pondering over this chat in the GB News pub. You know, we could have had this conversation about Europe 20 years ago. We could have said there's mm. basically not a single MP mm. that wants to leave, and yet a lot of people out in the, a, lot, a lot of people in this pub think we'd be better off out. And in the end, we got there, and what a hell of a victory it was. I mean, it wasn't easy, but we got there. But I'll tell you something. On global warming. Firstly, there's actually more scepticism about the science, I think, than people realise. A lot of people say, well, hang on, you know. Um, what about volcanoes? What about sunspot activity? Uh, I mean, there's nobody saying, by the way, that 7.5 billion people on this planet's a good thing, uh, in the sense that, you know, it must be doing something. So the scepticism around the science... I wouldn't say it's huge scepticism, because certainly anybody under the age of 35 has been indoctrinated, you know, without any sense of balance... Um, and the same on the BBC and elsewhere. 
But where there's real scepticism is on wind energy. Mm -hmm. Where there's increasing anger is people realising over these last 10 or 15 years, the amount of, of surcharge they've paid on their bills mm -hmm. to pay to people like David Cameron's father-in-law, who owns land in North Lincolnshire and has got wind turbines on them, to pay big offshore wind companies. So there's a, a, a real... I guess the higher bills go, the more they say, hang on, we've been ripped off for years on this. And now they're telling me... Now they're telling me that I've got to, in my Edwardian semi, you know, install a heat pump, and it's probably going to cost 25 grand to get all the, all, 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 all the different uh, building works done. And when the temperature drops below five degrees, it isn't going to work anyway. Uh, so I sense, I sense on this issue something's going on. Mm -hmm. And I know you spoke out about COP26 in the last couple of days. Just tell us what you said. Well, look, my, my view is I, I'm, not, I'm not even arguing about the science and there's people better qualified than me to talk about what's happening. And you know, is, the, is the climate changing? Well, of course the climate's changing. The climate's always changed and it always will do. So, I, I, you know, I, people say, you know, are you the climate deniers and all this stuff? I, I, absolutely not. I'm perfectly happy to accept the climate is changing and that those changes will cause some difficulties in different places around the world. I, I'm fully accepting of that. My point is, is that the, 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 the it's, I, 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 I even find saying it quite strange because it's so ludicrous, that the, the, the political class have decided that the solution to this problem is that we're all going to get together around the world and we're collectively going to change the world's climate. Now, that to me is as ridiculous as it sounds saying it. Oh, it's, come on, Philip. You know, <laughs> you know that if Boris gets the right agreement, in Glasgow over the next couple of weeks, temperature rises will be kept to exactly 1.5 degrees centigrade. I mean, you must be right, mustn't it? Yeah. I mean, I it's, it's nonsense. It's, an, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. And so my point is that we're, we're, we're literally on the verge of committing to spend £1.4 trillion in this country that we don't have, by the way, whilst also, at the same time, piling on costs onto consumers who are struggling already with the cost of living. And we're going to do all that in order to get our carbon emissions down from where they are currently, which is less than 1% of global carbon emissions, to net zero. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, China, India, emerging economies in Africa, their increase in carbon emissions each year, their increase is going to be more than our total. And so we're going to be pursuing a policy that we can't afford, which is absolutely futile, because of the actions of the other countries around the world. And, and people say, well, of course, uh, you know, if we do this, other countries will follow suit. No, other countries will take advantage of it. Well... Because we're handing them, we're handing them... Uh, absolutely. We're handing them heavy manufacturing, we're handing yes, them exactly. heavy engineering, we're handing China a massive strategic advantage. I mean, I'm completely with you on this. And, but when you, when you call your leader, your party leader and prime minister, when you say that his environmental push is utterly futile virtue signalling. Does he ever speak to you? Yeah, absolutely. Does he? Yeah. What does he say? Well, we just... We... It is before the watershed, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we, I, I get on very well with Boris. He's got lots of qualities. On this issue, he feels very strongly about it. I don't, I don't doubt his sincerity about the issue, but we just fundamentally disagree about the common sense of, of it. That's basically it. He thinks that this is really important. And, and to be honest, you know, he, uh, the majority of people in Parliament 
agree with that. Mm. I'm, in a, I'm in a very, very small minority of MPs who think it's absolutely crazy to go down this route. Um, and, you know, the point I keep making is, is that, you know, when people say, well, other, you know, if we do this, other countries will follow suit. This is the same argument that CND used in the 1980s about unilateral nuclear disarmament. If we do it, yeah. everyone else will follow suit. It was absolute madness then. And this, eco this environmental version of it is, is madness now. And these countries are not following us. They're laughing at us, frankly. And, uh, you know, China has been building a coal-fired power station every week. They've committed to I build... Think, I think more than that, actually. Well, yeah. they're committed to building 100 new airports over the next decade. Mm -hmm. And we're still in this view that if we just get ourselves to net zero and bankrupt ourselves in the process, we'll have sorted out the world's right. climate. But and how it's... do we get change, Philip? Because we have a first-past-the-post system, yeah. which means in England, which is 86% of the population, it's Labour or Conservative, there's the old scattering of Liberal, but, but, and, and there's no way of changing that. It can't be broken. Um, we don't have referendums very often on issues. I mean, would you be in... I mean, the Daily Telegraph have been sort of floating this idea of what about a referendum on net zero? And I looked at it a couple of weeks ago and thought, hmm, I'm not sure. The poll overnight's remarkable. Quite remarkable. It is, yeah. It's remarkable that a majority really want to have a proper open public debate about what we're doing in the name of climate change. Do you think there's an argument that we become a little bit more like Switzerland and we have the ability to have referendums on key issues? Now, that would devalue, in some ways, the role of Parliament, but how else could... I mean, getting things changed in this country is very hard, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, there's clearly an argument for it, and it works very well in Switzerland. Uh, look, I'm a Conservative for many reasons, and one of those is that, you know, I like, to, I like our institutions and the way we do things. I don't want to go down the route of having a referendum on things like this. I think it should just be for really important constitutional issues. I don't think we should go down that route. But the, the reason why I think the well, poll is... say so, that, but if we do that, it ain't going to change. Well, well, we'll see. I mean, I think that the reason why the polling is so keen on a referendum is, is it's one of the failings of Parliament, because Parliament is not reflecting the views of the public at large. And, I, you know, I've always believed that for a, a, a parliamentary democracy to work, everybody in the country's got to feel that at least somebody's speaking up for them. Mm. Uh, and too often, they don't see that. And so I think that, you know, we've got to do better in Parliament at making sure that everybody feels represented. But I, I do think things can change on this as well. And look, you know, you're the expert in this. You got, you got the biggest yeah. change of well, all, largely due to your... By getting millions to rebel. Yes, and, and you know, you, you played the biggest part of all in, in bringing about that change. There were some of us who were little foot soldiers that had played a little part, but you were... So you you know, you know this better than anybody. I, you know, I trust in the great sense of the British public. I think they're, they're always miles ahead of politicians on virtually every issue. No, I agree. And on this issue, I think there will be... It hasn't come yet, but there will be a massive backlash. When the real cost of this is discovered and people start to realise what's being expected of them, what freedoms they're having taken away from them, what additional costs are being forced on them, I think there will be a backlash of all backlashes. And to be perfectly honest, I suspect that many MPs and political parties, when that happens, will want to be part of that backlash. We'll get the U-turn happening. And... I, 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 I do no, genuinely... No, you, no, genuine you may be right. That. I had a guest on earlier making the same point. What is it, Philip, with you and betting? <laughs> um, you know, you're one of the few MPs that speaks up in favour of gambling companies. You, uh, you earn income from a global betting company. Um, Surely, betting's bad, isn't it?
Well, look, my, my mum was a bookmaker when I was growing up in Doncaster. She had her own betting shop. And, um, you know, I'm certainly not going to trash my heritage and, and, and everything that my background. And, uh, look, of course some people have a problem with gambling. Uh, and we should do everything we should we possibly can to stop that from happening and when people do develop a problem to help them get over that problem of course we should but equally you know people have a problem with alcohol uh, and alcoholism any kind of addiction is bad the question is do we really want to ban everybody from doing something simply because a few people have a problem and i i don't believe in a free country that should be the right attitude what we should do is identify those people who have an addiction and have a problem and give them all the support and help that we need whilst allowing those people who pursue their activities without any problem at all to continue doing so uh, look I've, i'm as critical of, of of betting companies for lots of things that they do i you know i don't you know there's the, the do you bet yeah, I do. I love having a bet. So do I. <laughs> uh, particularly on the horse. And, you know, one of the issues I have with, with, you know, with betting firms is that they often restrict the stakes of people who make money. And I think, you know, yeah. that's, uh, you know, they can't have it both ways. They can't say, look, we don't want to restrict the stakes of people who lose, but we do want to restrict the stake of people who win. So well, I'm, I, can be, I can be as critical as the next person of betting companies, but I think overall, we, if you believe in freedom then you've got to believe that people should have the freedom to pursue their activity whilst helping those who have well, a problem. You are, without doubt, you are the least PC member of the current parliament. Um, and that's a good thing. I'm very happy that you are. And we need voices out there that are genuinely independent in their, in their thought. And that's why, that's why I'd like to see electoral reform. I think we'd see more of those. But that's a story for another day. So what does Philip Davis now do? Because you've been in that parliament now for 16 years. You know, I did 21 years in Strasbourg, and that was way enough for me. But then everybody hated me there. And <laughs> only half of Westminster hates me. Um, <laughs> I'd be more than that. <laughs> what next? Well, I'm going to keep speaking up for my constituents on these issues, particularly where I think that the, the rest of the political class are, are not speaking about the issues that the people out in the country are. And yeah. uh, that's what I've always tried to do in, in, in Parliament, and that's what I'll always continue to do. And... I might be an unfashionable cause. I might be unpopular for doing it, but, um, you know, it's no point being in Parliament unless you're prepared to speak up for what you believe in. If you're not prepared to do that, What's what on earth is the point, the point in well, being there? that was Philip Davis on Talking Pints. Quite refreshing, in a way. The last section of the show. Yes, it's Barrage the Farage time. You send in your questions. I do my best to answer them. My guess sometimes helps, and I don't get previous sight of them. John asks me, do you think the establishment has been telling us we've got only 12 years to save the planet are culpable for the behaviour of insulate Britain protesters? Yes, you've got this ridiculous teenager from Sweden saying we're all going to die. No wonder they're gluing themselves to the roads, Philip. Yes, I, I agree. It's gone way over the top. Some of the hysteria is absolutely... The alarmism, beyond belief. Philip Davis should be... Oh, gosh, I'm not sure I can read this one out. Philip Davis should be the Conservative Prime Minister. <laughs> Boris, leader of the Green Party. I agree with that. <laughs> well, the Boris bit, I'm not sure about him as Prime Minister. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> John asks, after the glorious embarrassment of the Brexit referendum, calling it, losing it, trying to stop it. Do you really think the government will ever give us another referendum on anything? Because I don't. They're going to be very reluctant to. Uh, they're going to be very, very reluctant to. And that's really, you know, where I... Perhaps I'm a more... I'm more of a radical than Philip. You know, I would change everything about our electoral system. 
I think we agree on the House of Lords. They're hopeless. They all got to go. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I, yeah, affecting change in this country is damn difficult. I was part of a successful change, but it's not an easy thing to do. Right, I'm done. I've got questions about Poland being fine coming in, and goodness knows what else.